So what's next? It's a fairly innocent question, right? I mean, probably one you might turn to the people sitting next to you after the service this morning and ask, what's next? What are we doing now? Right? I would imagine for most of you that answer is going to involve lunch, and the conversation will go to, hey, where are we doing that? Or maybe it's later this afternoon, guys. Maybe you're at home working on that uh, never-ending honeydew list, right? And you get something done, and then you say, what's, what's next? What's, what's next on the list? Or you're, you're running errands. What's the next thing to do? question gets a little bigger when we take maybe one step back, take a broader view, when you start thinking about stages of your life. And maybe you're a college student and you ask yourself, what's next? Well, what am I going to do after this? Maybe you're married and you just had your first child and now you're saying, okay, what's next? What's this parenting thing going to be like? Or maybe you're at the other end of that story where your last child has just moved out of the house. And you're saying, what's next in for me now, without any kids at home, what's this empty nest thing all about? Or maybe you've undergone a transition in your career or, or something like that, and you're asking yourself, what's next? It becomes a bigger question. But if we take one more step back, and we just look at life itself, and we ask, what next? Well, now we've come to one of the biggest questions that there is. What's going to happen when my life is, is over? What comes after that? And that's where actually Americans are uh, agreed in, in a large part on, on that. 72% of Americans uh, believe, would say they believe in heaven. Now, do they all define that the same way? Probably not. But a, a solid majority of people in this country say, hey, I know what happens next. You die, and then you go to heaven. Then the question you have to ask is, well, how does that happen? How does somebody go to heaven when they Die, And that's the answer that we're going to see Jesus give in the passage we're going to look at today. And before we turn there and read it, what I want you to realize is the answer that Jesus gives was shocking. Because somebody he was talking to, he, he thought, well, wait a minute, I must be in. And it must be based on where you're born or what rituals you do or what you say you believe. And Jesus gives an answer to this guy that makes his head spin. And we need to make sure that we understand what Jesus is saying and how he answers what's really one of the most important questions that anybody in this room could ask today. So please take your Bibles and open up to the Gospel of John, chapter 3. Open to John, chapter 3. And we're going to look at what is really one of the most famous conversations in the history of the world. As Jesus talks to this man named Nicodemus. And what you're going to see here, and you've got to realize, is Nicodemus was a Pharisee. That means he was kind of the cream of the crop when it came to religious people. In fact, he was even a member of, of the Sanhedrin, right? This ruling body in Jerusalem. I mean, if anybody thinks, hey, when it comes to heaven and afterlife stuff, I'm in, it's this guy. But he comes and he talks to Jesus, and Jesus spins him completely around. In fact, you're going to see this guy tries to come up and set himself up as the authority and the evaluator of Jesus. And Jesus says, no, that's not how this works. Jesus makes clear, you're not my judge. In fact, you're not even in the kingdom of God. Let's look at this passage together. John 3, verses 1 through 15. It says, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. 
Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you did not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And this famous conversation then sets up verse 16, which we'll look at next week, the most famous verse in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. But it all starts really in verse 3, when Jesus makes this shocking statement. And Nicodemus comes to him, it says, it comes to him by night. Think about what Jesus has just done. He's cleansed the temple, right? He came in there, he made a whip, he drove out people and animals saying, get out of here, you've turned my father's house into a house of trade. How do you think that went over with the Pharisees? Probably not so well. So now you've got Nicodemus, one of the Pharisees, coming by night because it's probably not so, you know, kosher, so to speak, for a Pharisee to be going and mixing it up with Jesus at this point, but he's curious. And you can tell he has at least somewhat of a positive view of Jesus in verse 2. He's saying, hey, we know you're a teacher come from God, right? He's given him some credit, but Jesus is going to make it clear, yeah, you're not there yet. Because look at how verse 3 starts. I love this. It says, Jesus answered him. Now look back at verse 2 and take your finger and find the question mark in verse 2 and, and put your finger on it. Wait a minute. There is no question mark in verse 2. I love that. Verse 3, Jesus answered him. Nicodemus hadn't asked any questions yet, but Jesus sizes him up. Jesus again says, hey, I know you've come here to try to sort me out and evaluate me, but that's not the way this is going to work. I'm the one who's going to evaluate you. And let me, let me answer what's the most important question that you might not even be asking. How does somebody get into the kingdom of God? And Jesus says, hey, you have to be born again. And he says what's a common phrase in John that Jesus says when he really wants to get somebody's attention, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God, which a Jewish person would have understood as, you know, this end times eschatology, maybe in our word, heaven. Jesus says, you're not going to heaven unless you've been born again. And Nicodemus can't believe it. Verse 4, he's like, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born again? 
And there's times where Jesus makes a literal statement that, that he's trying to use figuratively and somebody just gets the literal meaning and it goes over their head. I don't think that's totally what's happening here because I don't think Nicodemus is really thinking that, I mean, even the tone there, I don't think he's really saying, Jesus, I'm not going to be born, go into my mother and be born again. What are you talking about? I think Nicodemus is picking up what Jesus is laying down. He's picking up, well, Jesus, you're implying, <laughs> hold on, Jesus, you're implying that I, I'm not in. I mean, he's like, hey, Jesus, come on, let's get real. You're being a little crazy here. What, am I supposed to get in my mom and be born again? Jesus, you're talking gibberish. Come on, shoot straight with me. Well, what are you really saying? That, that's what he's trying to say. But then Jesus, verse 5, he doubles down and says, no, no, no. Unless you're born of water and the Spirit, uh, unless you are born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. And that wasn't just Jesus' standard for Nicodemus. That is the truth that Jesus is trying to show to all people everywhere. Let's write this down for point number one this morning. You need to see the universal need for new life. See the universal need for new life. Everybody in the world, Jesus is saying, you must be born again. So then we have to ask the question, well, what does that mean? What does it mean to be born Again, and if we just start looking at the words, Jesus, and especially John, as he's recording the words of Jesus, loves using words that have a double meaning. And we'll see that a couple times. The Greek word that's translated again can be translated again, and sometimes it's translated from above. So it could be translated, if you haven't been born from above. And I think Jesus is totally fine with either because they both work. You have to have a spiritual birth. And so, yes, you must be born again in a spiritual way. And then verse 5, you must be born of water and the Spirit. Some people think, well, is water referring to, you know, physical birth? Like the, you know, there's that amniotic, what, what, amniotic fluid or what, you know, is that what he means by water? And well, no, because in Greek, you're never going to find somebody referring to physical birth as water. We'll talk about it in a second. Water and Spirit go together. That's the spiritual birth that he's talking about. Verse 6, yeah, you were born of the flesh, you were physically born, but you have to be born of the Spirit. And that's another word there with that double meaning, because the same Greek word that's translated spirit is also translated wind. And so now you can see in verses 6 through 8, Jesus is doing a play on words. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit, and the wind, that's the same word, hey, it blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes, so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. There's a spiritual birth that needs to happen. And, and we try to get some of these images, but it's clear that Nicodemus doesn't get it. And it's also clear, we're going to see in verse 10, Jesus expects Nicodemus to get this. Nicodemus is like, what are you talking about, Jesus? And Jesus is like, how in the world are you a Pharisee and you don't know what I'm talking about, Nicodemus? Now, Pharisees... What were they experts in? What did they know better than anybody else, right? They knew the law, the, the, what they would call the law and the prophets and the writings, what we now call the Old Testament. They, they were experts on that. They knew it better than anybody. And so there's, there are theories about what, what does Jesus mean when he's talking about water and spirit and, and the new birth? Well, I think we can say, hey, Jesus clearly expects Nicodemus to get this. So where is Jesus getting it from? I don't think we need to go into Greek philosophy or all these other things. I think we need to go to the Old Testament because that's where Jesus was expecting Nicodemus to understand this. So take your Bibles and let's go back to the Old Testament to the prophet Ezekiel. 
Go to Ezekiel chapter 36, which if you go past Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you get into all those short minor prophets. Then you might hit the prophet Daniel and go to Ezekiel. comes next if you're moving to the left in your Bibles. Ezekiel chapter 36. And we're going to start in verse 24. But what we're going to see here is what we often call a prophecy about the new covenant. That in the Old Testament, there's passages that point to something new that's coming later. And that's why even we talk about the Old Testament and the New Testament. You know, testament is just another word for covenant, right? The Old Covenant and then a new covenant. And the Old Testament speaks of this new covenant. And this is an example. Ezekiel 36, starting in verse 24. Right now, the Israelites, they're in exile, but God makes a promise. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I'm going to bring you back. But more than just something, you know, political, I'm going to do something spiritual. And that's what he starts talking about in verse 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. See, born of water and the spirit. We're seeing both of these things here. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. I'm going to do something new among you. And what am I going to do? I'm, it's going to be of water. I'm going to cleanse you from all your sin. And it's going to be of spirit. I'm going to give you a new spirit. And then chapter 37 is that familiar story of the dry bones. Remember that story maybe all the way back to your youth? You sang that song about the dry bones. Ezekiel comes and he sees this field full of, of these dead dry bones. And God brings him back to life. And he says, hey, I'm going to put all the bones together and I'm going to put flesh on him. And then he says, and I'm going to put my breath into him. And again, in Hebrew, it's the same play on words, breath and spirit. It's the same word. He said, hey, I'm going to put these bones together and I'm going to put my spirit in them. And I'm going to bring them to life. They're going to be born again, born of water and the spirit. Even in the Old Testament foretold that, hey, there was this renewal that was coming because our problem wasn't on the outside. Our problem is on the inside. We have bad hearts. We're, we're, we're sinners and, and, and we do that. We're, we're, we're captive to that. So we need to be cleansed of that and we need to be given a new heart, a new spirit. And Jesus is saying, hey, Nicodemus, this is what you need. And the Pharisees, they were big on these external rules and rituals. And Jesus is saying, that's not what it's all about. It's not about cleaning up your outside to make it look better. Nicodemus, you need to be born again. You need to be changed on the inside. And that'll work from the inside out. And Nicodemus, if you haven't been born again, you're not headed to the kingdom of God. And this is important for us to understand because it wasn't just some conversation between Jesus and and Nicodemus. This is important for us. Let me tell you guys, Nicodemus is alive and well. And I don't mean literally this, this, this guy right now. He's been dead for almost 2,000 years. But that same mindset is alive. Nicodemus thinks, wait, I'm a, I'm a Jew. I, I'm, a, I'm a Pharisee. I'm a part of the Sanhedrin. I keep all the rules. What are you talking about, Jesus? People today think the exact same thing. Most of modern America is right there with 
Nicodemus. Now, maybe not so much thinking, well, hey, I'm a Jew, I'm a Pharisee, I'm good. But remember that statistic we talked about in the intro, 72% of Americans believe in heaven. Well, when you then ask the question, okay, well, how many Americans believe that they are going to heaven? The percentages are just about the same, right? There's about as many Americans that believe they're going to heaven as there are people that believe in heaven, even the millennials, right? Which, I mean, is, we love making fun of the millennial generation. I'm like smack dab in the middle of the millennial generation, and I even love making fun of millennials, right? Sipping their expensive lattes, eating their avocado toast, enjoying the privilege that has been given to them by their hardworking baby boomer parents, right? Some of whom are sitting in the room, right? Even 68% of millennials believe, hey, I'm, I'm going to heaven. You know what's really hard to find in the United States of America? Somebody who believes in heaven that doesn't think they're going there, right? Same as, as Nicodemus. If you, you go to some of these people and say, hey, yeah, I know that's what you think, but unless you're born again, you're not in. They're going to have the same reaction that Nicodemus had. There's so many people today that think, well, hey, I'm going to heaven because I, I, I'm not an atheist, I guess. I believe, I believe in God. I guess if I had to choose, I would call myself a Christian. I'm not, you know, a Buddhist or an atheist or a Muslim, I'm sure, I'm, I'm, I'm a Christian. I live in the United States of America, for crying out loud. It, I'm a Christian. I go to church. I'm a good person. It's another fun statistic. Not only how many people believe in heaven, but also two out of three Americans believe they are better than average, right? Do, do the math on, on that, right? 60, 67% of people believe they're in the top 50% of people, right? Mm, some, more than a few people are wrong on that. And I think people today would be just as shocked by the words of Jesus as Nicodemus was. Where Jesus would look at them and say, hey, I don't, I don't care what box you check on the census. I don't care what external things that you do. I care about your heart. And if you have not been born again, you won't see the kingdom of God. You don't have what it takes to go to heaven. Even when you think about nature, when you think about this idea of transformation, think about the caterpillar turning into that butterfly, right? I mean, a caterpillar just crawling along slowly on the ground, not the most interesting thing. Maybe to a, you know, three or four-year-old boy, we'll be fascinated by it. But most of us, you know, oh, there's a caterpillar. Goes into the cocoon and transforms into something entirely different. It's almost like Jesus is saying, hey, unless you're a butterfly, you will not enter the kingdom of God. And most people want to say, well, hey, no, I'm, I'm a pretty good caterpillar, right? I'm not one of those like ugly caterpillars. I'm actually one of the ones that actually looks kind of cool, right? I'm, I'm better. I'm better than most of the other caterpillars. And Jesus is saying, you're missing the point entirely because there's, there's an entire transformation that needs to happen. You need to be born again where you are washed with water of cleansing of forgiveness through Jesus Christ, and you have a new heart, a new spirit, and new desires. Jesus is saying there's a drastic solution. And I think the reason most people are unwilling to accept this is they don't realize they have a drastic problem. I mean, I think we all look out at the world and agree, yeah, we got some drastic problems up in here. But the problem is looking in the mirror and saying, that's because I live here, right? I'm a part of the drastic problem. And that doesn't just go to what I do. It goes to what's inside my heart. We don't realize how dirty we are. And so I want to ask you all in this room this morning, the most important question I think I could ask, and that is, have you been 
born again? Have you experienced that change that Jesus is talking about where your sins have been washed away and you have become a totally new person from the inside out because God has given you a new heart? I didn't ask, hey, would you consider yourself a Christian? I didn't ask, hey, do you go to church? I didn't ask, hey, do you feel like you're better than most other people you know? Because all of that is irrelevant. Have you been born again? Jesus describes in verse 8 the wind, right? Which again, it's a play on words with spirit. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. It's supposed to be pretty breezy this afternoon. Go outside and point at the wind for me. Or better yet, grab a handful of it. You can't do it. But you can show me, I mean, you can say, hey, look at that tree. Look at that flag. Like, it's, it's whipping in the wind, right? I can see the effects of the wind. And can we always explain how God works in our lives? Not really, but I want to ask you, have you seen the wind of the Holy Spirit come through your life? And, and you've seen the effects of it. I'm a new person. I have new desires. I have new habits in my life. I, I've been changed by God. Has that happened to you? And I want to be... Be careful, because some of you, maybe you're, you're wondering that. Things that the Bible doesn't say. Jesus doesn't say, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you can give me the exact moment and the exact date in which God saved you, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven, right? No, Jesus doesn't say that, right? I'm not saying, hey, if you don't have this specific day, then you must not really be saved. The Bible never says that. I'm also, the Bible doesn't also say, truly, truly, I say to you, you know, unless this change happened after you were 13 years old, it's probably not legit and you won't see the kingdom of heaven, right? No, it doesn't say that either. This change might have happened when you were young uh, and maybe your pre-conversion story wasn't, well, you know, drugs and crime and all this crazy stuff, right? But here's the thing. Nobody in this room was born a Christian. You understand that, right? Jesus says you have to be born again and you might have been born to the most godly parents that ever walked the face of planet Earth. But unless you have been born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. There's a transformation that has to happen from the inside out. Has that happened for you? Don't assume, well, just because I'm sitting here in a church or just because, you know, I've never been some other religion, right, that I'm good. Have you been born again? And I know many of you in the room, you're thinking about that question, you're saying, I know I have. I've seen God change me from the inside out. I want us for a moment before we move on to the second point to think about this from another angle. What's our mission as a church? We're here to make disciples, right? Matthew 28, go into all the world and make disciples. And we break that down into reaching, teaching, training. Let's think about the first part of that reaching. One thing we want to see happen through our church is people that don't know Jesus, aren't living for Jesus. In other words, we want to see people born again. We want to see people get saved. And what I want us to realize is how hard that is, because it's not hard. It's not difficult. If we understand what Jesus is talking about, it's impossible. You get that, right? Our church isn't here, and for that matter, Jesus didn't come into the world to help people get a little bit better. He came, and he's left us. We want to see people made new. That's what the gospel is all about. There's two verses I want us to flip to before we move on to, to think about this from this angle. And one is in Luke 18. Keep a finger in John 3 and flip over to the left to Luke chapter 18. It's another famous conversation. Maybe you've heard about Jesus talking to the rich young ruler. 
He's actually pretty similar to Nicodemus because he shows up to talk to Jesus and acts like, I'm good, right, Jesus? I've done all the things. I've kept all the commandments. I'm good. And Jesus is like, yeah, not so much. Go sell all you have and give it to the poor. And the guy's like, ooh, yeah, nope, not going to do that, right? And what's Jesus exposing? Hey, bro, you haven't really been born again. You don't have a new heart. You don't have new desires because you're still all about money. And this guy walks away sad. Let's pick it up in verse 24. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Well, how difficult is it, Jesus? For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. In other words, it's impossible. And the disciples, the people hearing him, get this. And I want us to get this too. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? That's a very valid question. If you understand that to be saved, you must be born again, completely changed from the inside out, it's very logical for you to say, that seems like it's impossible, Jesus. Who in the world then is going to be saved? If it's not just, hey, if they repeat these words after me and if they walk through the doors of a church, how in the world are people going to be saved? And I think we need sometimes, if we really understand the gospel, and if we really understand our mission to reach people for Christ, we need to realize this is an impossible task, humanly speaking. But that's why I'm thankful there's a verse 27. And Jesus responds and says, what is impossible with man is possible with God. I believe that we're going to see people in this valley born again. People completely transformed from the inside out. Why do I believe that? Well, for one, Jesus says it. For one, I've experienced, and I'm looking out at a room that has a lot of people that I know have experienced this too. And I think God can do it again, and he, he says he will. So, well, I guess we'll just kind of cross our fingers and hope that this miraculously happens to some people. There's probably nothing I can do about it. No, wrong again. Now flip to one other passage I want us to look at, 1 Peter chapter 1. Again, you can keep your finger in John 3. If you just want to listen, that's, that's fine too. 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 23, where he's commanding them, hey, you need to love one another. Why? Verse 23, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. You were born again through the word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. How does he say they were born again? Well, one day it just happened. No, there was a word. There was a message that was proclaimed to you. And that's what God used to cause you to be born again. And so for those of us that are born again, as we think through this passage, I mean, it struck me this week what we're trying to do, right? We want to see dead people come to life, right? And we need to be struck by the impossibility of that task. And then once we're in that spot, we can realize, but wait, there is a God who will make it possible through his word. So we should respond to a passage like this saying, hey, I want to pray to see the miracle of new birth happen around me. And then I want to do my part of spreading the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ so that people can hear this word that will cause them to be born again. Everybody needs new life. And the only place we're going to find it is in the good news 
of Jesus Christ. But even as we seek to do that, we're going to come across a lot of Nicodemuses, right? The number one objection you're probably going to get is people saying, well, yeah, but I'm, I'm good. I'm a, I'm a good person. I don't know that I need a Savior. And basically, Nicodemus, as we get back to John chapter 3 in verse 9, when he says, how can these things be? He's basically saying, Jesus, I still kind of think you're a little crazy because this does not jibe with my feelings. This does not jibe with whatever my culture is saying. I don't know that I'm buying into this, Jesus. And Jesus responds again with shock, saying, really? You're a teacher of Israel and you don't understand what I'm saying? You know, you should get where this is coming from in the Old Testament, but you don't. And then check out verse 11. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. Jesus says, hey, Nicodemus, I know what I'm talking about. And the issue isn't that you can't understand it. The real issue is you won't accept it, right? You won't accept that this is true. And trust me, I know what I'm talking about. And that's what he gets to in verse 13, saying, no one has ascended into heaven except he who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And Jesus is saying, hey, I'm talking about me. I've descended from heaven. I know what I'm talking about. Have you been to heaven? Didn't think so. I know what I'm talking about, and I'm here to tell you this is how it is. And he calls himself the Son of Man. And if you ever hear someone say, oh man, I love how Jesus always used that title, the Son of Man. He was so humble, right? He didn't want to flaunt, you know, that he was this big, important guy. He loved referring to himself as the Son of Man, right? The Son of Man was not just some innocent, humble phrase. This was a specific phrase that came from Daniel chapter 7, which any good Jew at that time would have known. And in verse 13, it talks about, hey, this, I, I saw one like a Son of Man coming. And then verse 14 tells us what happens to the Son of Man. And to him was given dominion, and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. When Jesus is saying, hey, I'm the son of man, he's saying all people's languages and nations should serve me and my kingdom is never gonna end, right? That's, that's an audacious claim that Jesus is making when he calls himself the son of man. And he's telling Nicodemus, listen to me. I know what I'm talking about. And again, that's what we need to do today. We need to not trust our feelings, not trust our culture. We need to, point number two, trust the only one who knows what he's talking about. Trust the only one who knows what he's talking about. And that person is Jesus Christ. He is the one who has come down from heaven to tell us how it is. And we need to listen to him. Again, Nicodemus is alive and well. So many people, if they're confronted with, hey, unless you're born again, you're not going to heaven, they're going to say, man, that can't be right. And, and the first thing they're going to say is, uh, you know, that doesn't feel right to me. And I think that's one of the top things that competes with Jesus for our trust. We see what Jesus says, but then what we're tempted to do is trust our feelings, what do we think about that? How, how does that make us feel? I mean, in many ways, feelings have become the arbiter of truth in our society. Like, that is the trump card that cannot be overcome. If I feel something, that's the way that it is. I think we need to realize how feeble and fickle 
our feelings can be, right? I mean, there's days where I have felt terrible. I mean, my, out, my whole outlook on life is just dark and depressing. And then I eat lunch. <laughs> and all of a sudden, I can see color again, right? I hear birds chirping, right? Because really, I was just angry, right? Like, I was in that place where I'm just down, right? We've all seen our moods change. We've all sometimes looked back at yesterday and been like, man, why was I thinking those things? Why was I saying those things? Man, I was really being an idiot, right? Because I was feeling something, but I needed to just step back and, and take a look at the bigger picture. Our, our feelings can be dangerous things. And next time you fly, thank God that your pilots are trusting their instruments and trusting what the you know, air traffic control is telling them instead of just going with what their gut is telling them that day, right? I'm thankful that they, they aren't trusting. Remember that scene in the first Star Wars, right? Not episode one, the first of like the only three ones that are actually legit, right? When Luke Skywalker is trying to blow up the Death Star and you know, he has his instruments to, to shoot it and then the spirit of Obi-Wan Kenobi speaks to him and says, use the force, Luke. Don't use your instruments, trust your feelings, right? I mean, what a load of nonsense that is, right? I mean, maybe good for a science fiction movie, terrible life philosophy, right? I mean, that's living in a science fiction world when we just want to trust our feelings. Are you going to trust your feelings or are you going to trust the one who came down from heaven in love to show us the way? Another thing that we are tempted to trust is our, our culture, right? And this idea, hey, you must be born again and Jesus is the only way, those are flying into some very strong cultural headwinds, right? The culture does not like that. But I would trust, hey, most of us in this room, right, I'm preaching to the choir when we realize, hey, our culture, yeah, it's pretty messed up. Our culture doesn't really know what's up or down, right or wrong these days. I don't want to trust that. I want to trust Jesus Christ. He has come to tell us the truth. And obviously, this extends to so many other areas in life. This is what we were talking about last Sunday with meditating on God's word, right? Don't listen to yourself. Talk to yourself. What is true? What does God say that is true? Put your mind there. And it's interesting. There's, there's a story that Jesus tells about, it's about some unnamed rich man and a poor man named Lazarus. Do you remember that story? And they both die, and the, the rich man ends up in hell, while the poor man, Lazarus, he's in heaven chilling with Abraham. And, and the rich man from hell is talking to Abraham, being like, yo, Abraham, can you please send Lazarus back? Can you raise him from the dead so he can go tell my brothers so they don't end up here with me? And do you remember what Abraham says? He says, that's not going to work. Because if they don't believe the law and the prophets, they're not going to believe if someone comes back from the dead. And it's ironic how true that is because does someone end up coming back from the dead? Yeah, well, one, a guy named Lazarus. And then two, Jesus Christ himself rises from the dead. And, and did that all of a sudden make everyone believe? No, it didn't. And the same is true today. People, they can accept the words of Jesus Christ or not. And that's true for all of us in this room, and that's where we need to say, hey, you need to be born again. That's not how I feel. That's not how I drew it up. That's not how I want it to be or whatever, but that's how Jesus says it is, and I trust that that's probably actually the best because he knows what he's talking about, but it's important. Okay, I need to be born again, and we think about being born. I mean, how many of you were, you know, chilling in your mother's womb, reading the newspaper, and then, oh, it's that time. 
It's time to be born. It's my, it's my due date. Better get a move on, right? No, none of us. We didn't choose when we were born. That's why maybe on your birthday this year, instead of waiting for your mom to call you, call her and say, thank you, right? Thank you for putting up with the pain of bringing me into the world. Uh, maybe it would be a good thing, right? So what do we do with this? Okay, I need to be born again. What do I do? Especially if you're sitting here today saying, I don't know if I am born again. Well, do I just go home and hope that it happens today? I mean, what do I do? And that's where Jesus, he makes it, he makes it clear. It's not, well, leave here and try harder or leave here and maybe you'll get lucky. He makes it clear. Again, look at verses 14 and 15. It says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Well, there's an answer. Somebody wants to be born again. What, what should they do? They look to Jesus Christ. And that phrase, that he will be lifted up, every time John uses that phrase, again, it's one of those double-meaning phrases. It's talking about the Christ being glorified, but it's also talking about Christ being crucified. That he is literally lifted up on the cross to die for the sins of the world. And by trusting in him, that's where we find eternal life. That's how we can be born again. Point number three this morning, find your life in the death of Jesus. Find your life in the death of Jesus. And it talks about Moses and the serpent. And if you want to look that up and read more about it, you can find that in Numbers chapter 21, which, just side note, Numbers may be the most underrated book in the Bible, right? You even you hear the name, and unless we got some accountants in the room this morning, they're like, ooh, yeah, Numbers, right? That's my world, right? Most of us are like, Numbers. Yeah, isn't that the really boring book with all the numbers in it? Well, not so much. There's some amazing things that happen in the book of Numbers. And one of them there is verse, is in chapter 21, where what are the Israelites doing again? They're grumbling, saying, why did you take us out of Egypt so we could die in the wilderness, right? And they're being dramatic about it because, oh yeah, hasn't God been miraculously feeding them with, you know, bread on the ground every morning? Uh, yeah. But they're like, oh, there's no food in all. This, this food that you're miraculously providing every day, we're tired of it, right? They're complaining. And God, he responds in judgment. He says he sends fiery serpents among the people. And people are dying because they're being bitten by these poisonous snakes. And the people are like, okay, we're sorry, we're sorry, we're sorry. Pray that the snakes go away. And God answers, he doesn't take the snakes away. But he says, hey, Moses, I want you to make a bronze serpent and I want you to put it on like a, a flag standard. And if people look at that serpent, they'll be healed. They'll be saved. And, and that's exactly what happened. He does it. And those that are, even though they're still bitten by the snake, they look at the serpent and they're healed. They are saved from this. And Jesus is saying, that's what this is like. I'm going to be lifted up on the cross. And those that look at me in faith, they'll be forgiven. And we need to understand, we're already seeing this in the Gospel of John. It talks about belief, and there's clearly a good belief and a bad belief, right? There's clearly a belief that is impressed by Jesus. Maybe we'll check a box and say, yeah, I think Jesus is something special, but fall short of, I'm going to fully trust in Jesus, right? If you want to know what faith is, you're all showing it right now at this moment. You're all sitting in chairs, right? You're showing, you trust that chair to hold you up. 
None of you are standing next to the chair saying, yeah, I believe this chair could hold me up, right? No, you're, you're sitting in it. And I'm looking around. I don't see any of you. Well, hey, I'm going to sit in this chair in such a way that just in case it falls apart, I'm still going to be good, right? No, you, you wouldn't probably. I'd be very impressed with, you know, your quads if uh, you could do that for 45 minutes, right? No, that's not how it works either. You're fully trusting in it. And Jesus, that's the kind of belief that he's looking for. Not just a, okay, yeah, I'm not good enough, but maybe Jesus can help me out. A faith that says, I've got nothing, and I need to lean completely on Jesus. And I want it to be so clear that if, if you're here today and you even have the thought, I don't think I'm born again, and you think, okay, well, then I need to leave here today, and I need to go out there, and I need to try harder. No, you've missed the point completely. You can't try harder to be born again. Any more than if you're bitten by a poisonous snake, you can't just, well, I'm going to try really hard to think positive thoughts and not let the poison kill me. No, unless there's an antidote, unless there is a cure, you're dead. You can't try harder to be saved. The answer is you have to look at Jesus. You have to put your trust in him, that he is the only one that can forgive your sin. He is the only one who can give you a new heart. Because see, we've all been bitten by the serpent so to speak. We all suffer from the effects of sin. Sin runs through our veins because we have a bad heart. And what we need to realize is, God, I need a new one. And Jesus is the only one that can give it to me because he died on the cross so I could be cleansed from my sin and he rose again so I could have new life and new hope through Jesus Christ. It all points to him. And while this text can be confronting to us, I think it's also encouraging. And even Nicodemus, we're going we're gonna to see Nicodemus again in the Gospel of John. And even based on what we see, I think that we are going to see Nicodemus in the kingdom of God. I think he, he eventually got it and put his faith in Christ. But as we end, I want us to think about one more Pharisee. Turn to Philippians chapter 3. Turn to Philippians chapter 3, and we're going to see a Pharisee by the name of Saul, who later was known as the Apostle Paul. And he had this realization that although, you know, culturally speaking, he thought he had it all together. He was a Jew. He was even from, you know, what I like to think of as the best Jewish tribe, the tribe of Benjamin, right? Uh, he was a Pharisee, right? He says, I was so zealous. I was so on fire for the law and all the stuff that I thought was, was good and was right, but... Look at verse 7, Philippians 3, verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. I realized all of that was nothing. I needed to be born again. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Right? That's it. That's what being born again looks like realizing, hey, all the things I think I've got going for me, being a good person and whatnot, it's nothing. 
In fact, it's less than nothing. What I need is Christ. And I'll gladly trade all of that to know him and have a forgiveness that comes from him that's not based on what I do. So have you been born again? Have you turned from your sin, realized I have a problem, I've been bitten by the serpent, and I need to look to Jesus in faith? Have you done that? And if you have, I want us to end today rejoicing that although we were dead in our sins, although we had no hope, Jesus showed up and he was lifted up for us. So we're going to celebrate the Lord's table together this morning. The ushers are going to come forward and take those elements and hold on to them. And Stephen is going to come and, and play some on the, on the piano. And I want us to, to stop and reflect on what we've learned. And if you're thinking today, I, I, don't, I have not seen that change in my life. Again, it's not, well, sorry. There's hope, and it's right now you can look to Jesus. And what needs to happen is you need to be born again. It's not just, hey, pray some prayer and repeat after me or raise your hand or, or walk an aisle. It's right now you saying, God, I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm not good enough on my own, and I'm looking to Jesus. I'm trusting in him to be my Savior and my Lord. That's what it would take right here, right now. You don't even have to say a word out loud. Right there in your heart, it can happen. And for those of us that have put our faith in Jesus Christ, should we not use this as even as it's referred to in Scripture as a cup of thanksgiving, a cup of gratitude, saying, God, I don't deserve my spot at this table. I'm a guest here, and I'm only here because of what Jesus Christ has done for me. And take some time to thank the Lord for how he has saved you, for how he has changed you. Take a few minutes, and then we'll take of this all together. When we do, when this life is over and we stand before Christ, and I guess so to speak, at the, at the gates of the kingdom of God, right? Not one of us is going to be able to point back and say, well, hey, I'm going to heaven because of what I did. The only thing we're going to be able to say is all I have is Christ. He was lifted up for me. And he, that's where my trust is. And even the new life, hopefully, that we should see from that, it all comes from what Jesus has done for us. And that's why Jesus taught us to do this, to remember him. We do this together every month on the first Sunday of the month to start by reminding ourselves the only hope that we have is Jesus' blood, Jesus' righteousness, what he has done for us. And so let's do this and rejoice and do this in remembrance of him. Take this bread and drink this cup. Let's pray together. God, even right now as we can taste the bread and taste the cup, the fruit of the vine together, God, may it be the reminder that you intended it to be. God, may it be the reminder that there is not one person in this room that is quote-unquote good enough. God, there's not one person in this room that can stand before you and say, I've made it, I I've done it, God, that we're all Sick, God, from the inside out, Lord, we have a problem with sin. But you have made a way. You have provided a solution, God, and you've done it freely, God. And even today, that the offer of salvation is free to all who would put their faith in Christ. And God, even let it be a cup of thanksgiving today. For those of us who are born again, God, may we leave here today rejoicing not rejoicing in how righteous we are or how much better than everyone else we feel, but rejoicing that there is a Savior for sinners like us. And His name is Jesus Christ, and He was lifted up, and on the cross, 
He took the wrath for the sin that we, he took the wrath that we deserve for the sin that we have committed. God, so we want to leave here today praising you, rejoicing in you. And it's in, in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.